Mark chapter 10, we're going to be studying verses 28 through 31 today. And the title of this message is, You Can't Outgive God. Father, as we've come to your word, we just ask that you would do a deep and abiding work in us. We believe that your word is sufficient for everything that is happening in our lives and in our world. We believe that your Holy Spirit working through your holy word is enough to transform our lives to set things right that are wrong, to expose the hidden and the dark places, to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. And so in your word now, we just ask that you would speak, God, that you would speak deeply to our hearts, that you would begin to conform us to your image by your word. So I submit my thoughts and my mouth to you, God, Ask that you would come instruct by your spirit. Glorify yourself. Manifest your goodness and your character and your attributes in our midst through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we encountered the young rich ruler in our text in the book of Mark. And we learned about the young rich ruler that he seemed to have everything going for him. He was just that. He was young and he was rich and he was a ruler. He had his youth and his health. He had some money and some wealth. And he had some prestige and some power in the community. But what he did not have was the security of eternal life. And so he came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you'll remember that Jesus cut to the chase and got to the issue of his heart. And we discovered with this young man that his heart was all wrapped around his things. You know what I'm saying? His heart was all wrapped around his possessions and the stuff he owned. And the Lord knew that. And what the Lord was interested in with the man was his heart because our God is a lover and lovers communicate via the heart. And so God, wanting the young man's heart, said, well, let me reveal where your heart is. It's in your things. It's in your possessions. It's in your wealth. Get rid of those and come and follow me. And we're told in verse 22, at these words, the young man's face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. He wasn't willing to count the cost to follow Jesus Christ, so to speak. We learned last week to come to the Lord. You must come to the Lord in an attitude of surrender. Firstly, in an attitude of surrender with regards to the fact that you are a sinner. You've got to come to God and say, okay, God, I surrender, I give up, I admit, I confess before you that I am wrong and that you are right. That I've done, thing wrong, done things wrong, I continue to, I am a sinner, God, save me. But in another vein, in another aspect, we've got to come to him in an attitude of surrender. And that is surrendering our own wills, our life, our agenda, our stuff even. Not, again, that the Lord is after your stuff. Doesn't need it. Could create it. There's a Hebrew word for create. It's the word bara. It means to create out of absolutely nothing. That's what God does with stuff. God could create his own stuff. Doesn't need your broken down old stuff. But he does want your broken heart. And sometimes your stuff stands between your heart and your God. And so God will deal with it. And so you've got to come in an attitude of trust and surrender and dependence And unfortunately for the rich young ruler, he was finding his identity and placing his hope in the things that he had. And so the Lord spoke in verse 23. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus here says once again that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Why is that? We learned last week it is not because it is a sin to be rich. The Bible never teaches that it is wrong or a sin to be rich. Indeed, there are many people in the Bible and in history that God has blessed tremendously in that area. There's nothing wrong with that. In and of itself, money is morally neutral. The most often misquoted verse in the Bible, perhaps the most often misquoted, is found in the sixth chapter of Timothy. It says, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. You've heard it communicated. Money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money in and of itself, once again, is morally neutral. But the love thereof is corrupting to the heart of man. Man is too quick, aren't we, to wrap our hearts and our hope and our security and our identity around the things that we have. Or for those that don't have, they simply wrap their hope around what they don't have and what they wish they had. You see, the poor man can be just as guilty as a love of money as the rich man. So there's no condemnation here in the scriptures for being rich, but there is a heart check And really, I believe that this heart check with regards to money that we spoke of last week and we're speaking of again is for all of us in this room. The Bible is written to the whole world. And on a world scale, we Americans are tremendously wealthy. All of us in this room. You might not be wealthy uh, for Santa Barbara standards. Who is? None of us. (laughs) Well, gee whiz. For Santa Barbara standards, you might be poor. But in the world standard, everyone in this room would be considered wealthy on the world scale. And so it's important for us to heed this warning, to be aware of where we are placing our trust and our hope and our joy and what we're striving after, and to be aware of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, which says simply, He who trusts in riches will fall. He who trusts in riches will fall. Notice it doesn't say he who has riches, but he who trusts in riches will fall. We believe here at Reality in the doctrine called the inerrancy of the Word of God. The doctrine of the inerrancy of the Word of God means simply that on any subject which the Bible speaks of, it always tells the truth about that subject. The Bible's going to talk about something, it's always right about that something about which it is speaking. And so we come to this with tremendous confidence and know that God is right in what he's saying here. It is not a question. It is only a matter of time. He who trusts in riches will fall sometime during the life or on the deathbed. What dollar is there that can buy your way out of death? There isn't one. It may prolong your life. You may be able to afford to get the best doctor in the world and he could prolong and sustain you with machines, but there is no way that money will ever save your life or guarantee you eternal life. Now this was interesting for the Jews, and so they marveled in verse 26. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? In the Jewish mindset, this was brand new revelation for them. 
Because the Jews believed that anybody who was wealthy was blessed of God. And that having wealth was a sign of being blessed by God. Jesus clearly dispelled that when he had this interaction with a young rich ruler. And so the world of the disciples were a little bit rocked here. If this young guy who is rich and who is powerful, if he can't be saved, who can be saved, Lord? We thought that was a sign of God's blessing upon his life. Not necessarily so. And so the Lord answers in verse 27. Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. No man, rich or poor, in and of himself can save his soul. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? There is no amount of money you can earn to secure you a place in heaven. There is nobody in your family upon whose coattails you can ride to heaven. There is no amount of good deeds you can do to earn your way into heaven. There's no amount of praying. There's no amount of thus and so and the other that you can do. The entrance to heaven is given freely by God. Salvation is from God. It is the gift of God. It is His work and it is His doing and not the work of man. It is a free gift, so we've got to receive it. How do we receive it? We receive it by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith and not of works. It is the free gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith. It is the free gift of God. Many people struggle with the idea of grace. That God gives salvation to men freely. Notice I didn't say cheaply. Because there was a tremendous price that was paid upon the cross. And yet for us to receive it, the price having been paid, we've just got to reach out and hold on to it and grab onto it by faith. But many people struggle with this because it means that there's nothing they can do to earn it. And men are uncomfortable with that. Because men like to do things. I'm talking about humanity in general. It's hard for them to swallow. Sometimes when you will share the gospel with somebody, they'll say, it's too easy. What do you mean? Just believe and receive. I just got to say, I'm sorry and repent for my sins and that, that's it, I'm going to heaven? It's that simple? There must be more I have to do. Have you ever heard that? There is something innate in the heart of man that wants to do something about it because man likes to justify himself. Man likes to either through his own reasoning of his intellect or some doing of his physical being, justify himself. But God is the one who justifies, the Bible says. Only God can declare innocent and righteous. Man cannot do that. Secondly, we know that man likes some degree of self-satisfaction. Man likes to feel like, I achieved this. I did something. I deserve this. The Bible makes no allowance for that whatsoever. In fact, it says in Isaiah 64, 6, that even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. And thirdly, man enjoys some degree of self-glorification. Man likes to boast. I'll tell you that in my own nature, if there was something I could have done to earn my way to heaven, if I pulled it off, I would immediately begin to boast about it. I probably would have had a t-shirt made that said, my name is Britt, and I did thus and so, and earned my own way to heaven. I'm wonderful, and you're not. But thankfully, God doesn't allow for that. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 says clearly that it is not of works that no man could boast. You see, God is the judge and God wants to be the one who does the justifying. And so he's eliminated man being able to justify himself. 
God is the one who wants to be able to satisfy you with himself. And so he's eliminated your ability to work and earn it. And God needs to be the one who gets all the glory. So he does not allow man to earn salvation, but he freely gives it. And in doing so, God proves himself to be a just and holy, righteous, merciful, graceful, compassionate, glorious God. And that only works through the cross. Guilt is only dealt with on the cross. Satisfaction is only found in knowing God. And God is the only one who gets the glory. That is the doctrine of grace. But Peter now, Peter, man that he was, is beginning to feel the pull of the flesh. The Lord just made an amazing statement. You can't work your way to heaven with man. It's impossible. It's a free gift of God. And Peter now chimes in in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Lord, wait a minute. That last statement you made, that was a little too God-centered and not enough Peter-centered. I want a little credit here, Lord. I left everything. Remember my business? I had a fishing business. I had nets. I had boats. I had a family. Lord, I've left it all and followed you. Now you just pull the rug out from underneath me. There's no merit in that. That didn't earn me anything in heaven. Behold! You know what behold means? Behold means check it out. Peter's saying, wait a minute, Lord. Check it out, everybody. Listen, (laughs) look what I did. What about me? What's in it for me? Lord, don't tell me this was all for nothing. What's in it for me, Peter says. Surely, Lord, the young rich ruler was cheesy, but we abandoned those things. We've done right even if he didn't. Lord, we left everything for you. And so the Lord responds in verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, underline that, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, underline that, And in the age to come, eternal life. The Lord says here clearly, listen, Pete, if you have left some things, if you've made a sacrifice for my sake and for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom, if you've laid some things down to follow after me and do my will, Peter, there will be tremendous reward. Peter, it will be a hundred Times as much. Not a hundred percent return, but a hundred times the reward. Peter, you've got to understand that God is a giver and he will not be outgiven. God is not a taker, he doesn't need our stuff. God is a giver who will not be outgiven. And so he says here that those who have surrendered things unto him, who have made sacrifices, they will have the reward in this life and in the life to come. We believe here in reality in a, liter- in a literal interpretation of the Bible. What that means is we believe in what the Bible means to say to be absolutely true. Jesus says here that the person will receive a hundred times as much in houses and in brothers and sisters and in mothers and in children and in farms. Now what he meant was, in a hyperbolic statement, there will be tremendous reward for you. That is the meaning, the literal interpretation. He didn't mean that he would give you a hundred houses if you left your one. After all, would you really want to clean a hundred houses? 
He didn't mean that he would give you a hundred sisters. Do you really want a hundred little sisters? Maybe you do. He didn't mean that he would actually give you a hundred farms. You want to milk that many cows every morning. But in a sense, we really do gain those things, don't we? When you enter into the kingdom of God and the family of God, you come in and you've got well over a hundred new sisters in this room. You've got well over a hundred new brothers, over a hundred new mothers. And their house is your house. Go there for lunch. Make yourself at home. (laughs) But lest anybody would follow Jesus with selfish motives, he was sure and he was careful to put in the phrase there, along with persecutions. That is a promise of the kingdom of God. If you follow the Lord, even if you make tremendous sacrifice for him, there will come into your life persecution. How do you know that you're walking with the Lord and that you're in his will? There's a degree of persecution happening in your life. The more you reflect the Lord, the more the world will reject you. That is an axiom that is always true. And yet Paul had a right perspective about it. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. The things I go through in persecutions and trials in the ministry and in the Christian life, they are not worthy to be compared with the promises of heaven. He says also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that these momentary light afflictions are producing for us a far more eternal weight and glory. Paul says, the things I go through in my Christian life, though some are difficult, they're not even worthy to talk about. I'm not going to whine. I'm not going to complain. It's nothing in light of what we have been given in God. And yet, check out Paul's ministry. I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians 11. Just listen. Paul, recapping his ministry, says, I've worked far harder than anybody else. I've been in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and in exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Welcome to the ministry. Welcome to an obedient, radical Christian life. Paul went through some stuff, and yet he was able to call these things in the same book here, momentary light affliction. Not worthy to be compared with the glory of heaven. But Jesus is sure to point out that though we may sacrifice for him in following, there's always going to be persecution and a degree of suffering in the church. God will see to it. In the book of Acts, God told the church to go forth into the world and make disciples. For about eight chapters, they sat there in Jerusalem and went nowhere. And so God brought persecution upon the church. There was Stephen, the first martyr, and there were more to follow. And when persecution fell, the church got real. When persecution fell, the church got real. And then they began to go out and the gospel became effective. So in our individual lives, we may be going nowhere in our Christianity, just sitting in Jerusalem, so to speak, being unproductive in our walk. 
And the Lord will bring a little suffering into our life, a little persecution, a little hardship, and suddenly the gospel gets real. The gospel comes alive, and it now comes out of our life instead of just sitting on the inside. It's God's design. You can't get around it. A few things here we would do well to learn along with Peter. Number one, mere obedience is nothing to boast about. You realize that Peter was boasting about his obedience here. Lord, we left everything and followed you. You've got to understand that in Christianity, obedience is the bare minimum. There's no boasting in obedience to the Lord. Peter was just doing what the Lord called him to do. In fact, we can reason from the gospel accounts that the Lord had to call him a few times. He had about three different encounters with him where he said, Peter, come and follow me. And Peter would let down the nets and the boats and he would go and follow and then he would always go back to the nets and the boats. Peter, come and follow me. He'd follow and he'd go back. Even after this, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we will see once again Peter going back to the nets and the boats. It was the Lord who called him to leave those things behind and because it was the plan of God and because it was ordained of God, there is no boasting for the people of God. Ephesians chapter 2, now verse 10. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God made you. He prepared the good works before you and then He causes you and works in you to walk in them. So where's the glory for you? There is none, friends. There's no boasting in our obedience. It's bare minimum as a Christian. I'm going to share with you now a scripture from Luke chapter 17. Turn there, please. Luke 17. Luke 17 is a horrible passage. It strips the Christian and the servant of God of any possible boasting of any feeling of hooray for me, I've done what God told me to do. It's absolutely horrible. Jerks the rug right out from underneath me every time I read it. But it's wonderful. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus speaking. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? The Lord is beginning to reason with the boys. Who? has a slave, and when the slave comes in from working, says to them, oh, come and sit down and let me serve you, slave. Verse 8. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you can eat and drink? He does not thank the slave, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things... When you do all the things which are commanded you, you should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. How humiliating. How wonderfully humbling for the Christian that the Lord would say, your attitude ought to be, I am a mere lowly slave. I've only done the bare minimum, what I should have done. There's no room for boasting and obedience. And this ought to keep us from one of the greatest evils, which is spiritual pride, to which I am frequently given to, as are some other Christians. We've got to, I've got to, guard my heart and our hearts against this. And this verse is perfect for doing that. It puts us right in our place before God as lowly slaves. And yet at the same time, 
We are the wonderment of God. He is absolutely overwhelmingly in love with us. He formed you in your mother's womb. We are called the pearl of greatest price. He was infatuated, overwhelmed, and obsessed and overjoyed with you. And he thinks about you continually. The Bible says his thoughts toward you are more than all the sand on all the beaches. You are wonderful and awesome in his sight. But a lowly slave. Let those two be held in theological tension. And they will create in your Christian life balance. There will come for you a balance in your walk. If I'm just a lowly slave, the bare minimum is obedience. And yet I am the wonderful, cherished saint and child of God. That's the whole of Scripture. We've got to guard against spiritual pride. Proverbs 11.2 says that pride comes before dishonor. Pride comes before the fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 warns us, Take heed if any man thinks he stands, lest he fall. How are we to stand before God? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that we are to stand and be strong in the grace of God. We are to stand and be strong in the grace of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that our standing before God is in grace. So how do you walk daily? You walk in grace. What is grace? It is the lavished, undeserved favor of God. God looks at us, and I I, I figure that somewhere in the back of his sovereign mind, he must be saying, gee whiz, this guy is not so great. On the outside, he's nothing special. On the inside, he's a mess. I know his heart. I know what's in there. I know his mind, I know every thought, I know everything that comes out of his mouth. This guy is not so great, and yet I'm absolutely in love with him. And therefore, I'm going to lavish him as my child. I am going to gift him as my precious bride. And so we stand before God deserving nothing but receiving everything. Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we live our Christian life daily in that knowledge. And the thrust of the Bible is this. The Bible is all about what God has done for you, not what you can do for God. I think it was Uncle Sam or something who said, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Not so in the kingdom of God. The thrust of the Bible is what God has done for you and I. And what he is going to do, not what can you do for him. That is never the thrust and the emphasis of the Bible. It's got to be on God and the things that he does. And that brings us to our second point. God is a giver who will never be outgiven. God is a giver who can't be outgiven. Peter said, Lord, we left some homes, we left some brothers, we left some sisters, some farms. The Lord said, you will receive a hundred times as much. Not a hundred percent, but a hundred times. Now in this earth and in heaven. God is a giver and not a taker. And he will never be outgiven. In fact, he gives us in scripture an explicit challenge for us to try to outgive him. Turn now to Malachi chapter 3. It is the last book in the Old Testament. Italians call it Malachi. But he was a Hebrew, not an Italian. It's Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. God is speaking to Israel here. And he says to Israel, God speaking, Malachi 3, 7. 
From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, and you haven't kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God responds in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God responds, in tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Extremely strong words. Listen to me. God was mad with Israel. God was upset. And he tells them explicitly why. He considered it to be them robbing from him when they withheld from God their tithes and their offerings. The tithe is the first 10% of everything you get. Every bit that you earn, all that is produced, the first 10% throughout the Bible is for God. It is called the tithe. The offering is whatever is above and beyond that 10%. So it doesn't stop with the tithe. It goes beyond the offerings. God says, you are robbing my, me by withholding tithes and offerings. And because of it, there was a curse upon the nation. They were lacking in productivity. They were lacking in fruitfulness because they were withholding from God, trying to attain for themselves what God was happy to give them if they would only bring the tithe in. And so that is now alliterated in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. When I first heard this scripture, it absolutely changed my life forever. I have never been the same since I first heard this. It was several years ago, a long time ago, and I was sitting with a pastor from Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, in uh, Esau's, that restaurant on Lower State Street. There's also one here in Carpinteria. And uh, he was just, you know, asking me about my life and kind of probing and poking around a little bit, trying to see what was going on. And he just out of the blue asked me, are you tithing? What do you mean am I tithing? I'm still a kid. Of course I'm not tithing. I hardly make any money at all. I make like $100 a month. Why would I tithe? And he said, oh, let's go to Malachi chapter 3. And he simply read this passage. And he said, listen, Britt, as far as I know, this is the only time in the whole Bible where God says, test me in this. Come on, bring it on. Let's see. Test me in this. If you bring in the tithe, if you give the first of your income to the Lord, see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And so because I believe the word of God, I took the challenge of the word of God and from that day forward I begin to tithe. And I've seen that God has always been faithful, more than faithful. God has been exceedingly generous. And that there's never a lack and there's never a worry. Now the question comes up now, people ask me about tithing. And they'll say, well, okay, I see this passage, but do I tithe on the net or on the gross? I say, well, what do you want to be blessed on? You want to be blessed on the net or the gross? Tithe on whatever you want to be blessed on. I don't know. And then I have college kids all the time. I want to speak to you people here now, college kids. They say to me, I ain't got no money. I'm in school full-time, and my mom, she sends me a check. Tithe from that check. What do you mean tithe from that check? My mom tithes. It would be a double tithe. Tithe from the check. (laughs) Why? Because as soon as the money goes into your hand, it's not about your mom's heart. It's about your heart. 
You see, and the reason that God calls us to tithing is because He wants to conform us to His image. You understand, we are created in the image of God and we are to grow into the image of Christ. And God is a giver. And when God calls us to give and we respond, we are transformed into the image of God. God is a giver who wants to make us like Him. And so He calls us to give. No, God does not need your money. He could create money out of nothing. That is not the issue here. That is not the story. Again, God is after your heart. But there is a principle here, and there is a challenge. I want to see the challenge uh, develop further as we turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Starting in verse 9, Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of your produce. There is a fact in the Bible that is absolutely inescapable cover to cover. That when God calls his people to give, he, got, he calls his people to give off the top, from the first. Whenever there were crops and they were harvested, the first fruits were to be brought to the Lord. The first of the crop, the first of the harvest, the first of the herd, whatever it was, the first and the best was to be brought to the Lord, not the last and the worst. And what human wisdom says is this, okay, all right. I'm going to give my God my 10%. But I'm going to make sure I have my bills paid first. And then we'll see what's left over and I'll give from that. Listen, at that point, don't even give. Don't even give at that point. Because you haven't given in faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And anything not done in faith is sin. It says that in the Bible. Don't, at that point, don't give. The whole purpose is defeated. You see, God wants our heart and God wants to develop in us faith. And here's what takes faith, is that when the paycheck comes in, the first check that goes out is a tithe. The first one. I don't know if I'm going to have enough money to pay all my bills. Verizon might be sad with me this month. Cox Cable could be upset. I don't have cable, bad example. Uh, Whatever. Toyota's going to be upset. Somebody's going to be sad. I don't know if I have enough to pay my bills, but I'm going to give to the Lord first and trust Him with the rest. The moment you give to the Lord first, your bills become His problem. If you don't, they're your problem. Now, who do you want the problem to be? But understand, God calls us to be wide stewards. He may be calling you to change some of your spending habits. But nevertheless, it is always God's will to bless those who give to Him. We read it in Malachi chapter 3. We see it again here in Proverbs chapter 3. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That is the promise of God. God is not a taker, he is a giver and he refuses to be outgiven by men. Test him in that. See what happens. Peter, Peter, Peter had a boat. Luke chapter five, Peter had a boat. Jesus needed a pulpit. Jesus is teaching to the multitudes. He's backed up against the Sea of Galilee. The people are pressing in upon him. He needs a pulpit from which he could teach the people. And so he steps back into Peter's boat. And now we're told in Luke chapter 5, he's teaching the people from the boat. 
And it says explicitly in Luke chapter 5, as soon as he was done teaching the people, he said to Peter, now Peter, push out into deep water, let down your nets for a catch. What is the Lord doing? Well, he's repaying and he's building. Peter, I used your boat. I'm going to give you a hundredfold now. Push out into deep water, let down your nets. Lord, we haven't caught a thing all night. I know, Peter. I know. You never catch anything. Tell me something I don't know. (laughs) But it's time to start catching. Push out, let down your nets. And the nets were filled to the point that they began to break and the boats began to sink. If the Lord is going to use a resource of yours, He's going to pay you back a hundredfold. That's God. He won't be outgiven. That's what the Scripture says. He used Peter's boat and then He filled Peter's boat. If He's going to use your life, He is going to fill your life. That's our God. He won't be outdone. He won't be outgiven. And as I said, he was not only repaying, but he was building. He was building faith into Peter to trust the Lord. Peter is a wonderful fulfillment of our scripture in Acts chapter, or uh, Mark chapter 10. In Acts chapter 3, we see him and John going up to the gate beautiful to pray, and there's a man there begging alms, and he's crippled. And he's looking for money from Peter. And Peter says to him, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give unto you. And he reaches out and grabs his hand and says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he pulls him up on his feet. And the man walks. Peter may have abandoned financial things to follow the Lord, but Peter was extremely wealthy in spiritual things. And what he had, he gave away. Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor is... A pioneer missionary. He was born in 1832. He started China Inland Missions. A phenomenal story of Hudson Taylor and his wife. Uh, There's any number of books written about his life, but he had a pivotal moment in his life when he was very young. He was the assistant to a doctor. And his doctor was extremely forgetful. And his doctor said what you never want your employer to say. "Uh, Listen, young Hudson, you're going to have to remind me when it's time to pay you. Hudson, knowing that he was called to be a missionary, wanted to cultivate faith in his life. And so he made a covenant with the Lord. I'm never going to remind my boss that it's time to pay me. I will only pray that he remembers. And there came a day when the money was well overdue and his rent was overdue. And he's going, man, my boss isn't giving me the money. And all the while, he's just praying. And one night, he's there working, doing his surgery with the doctor. And the doctor still didn't pay him. He leaves. And late at night one evening, he's walking through a bad part of town. And he hears an Irish voice call him into his house. And it was a man whose wife had fallen sick. And the man had no money. And he said, come in. I want you to pray for my wife. She's sick and my children are starving. And he said, call the priest. And he said, I did call the priest. He won't come for anything less than 18 bucks. And so young Hudson Taylor went in there. And as he went in, he saw their five children with their eyes deeply sunken and their cheeks sucking in. They were looking rather emaciated. And he saw there a weak mom gasping for her last, last breaths of life with almost a lifeless child on her chest. And he realized at that moment he had one coin in his pocket. It was like a quarter. It was about the equivalent of a quarter and it was in his pocket. And he saw that they were in need and he began to say, if only I had two dimes and a nickel, I would gladly give them a dime. I wish I didn't just have this quarter. And so he says, well, you brought me to pray for you. I'm going to pray. And as soon as he knelt down to pray, he said, our Father who art in heaven, and a voice, his conscience said to him, you hypocrite. 
How dare you pray for God to provide for them and to minister to them while you have your quarter in your pocket? And so young Hudson Taylor took the quarter out of his pocket and with his hand trembling, he reached forward and he said, I know this isn't much, but this isn't easy for me to give to you. This is all I have. And what I have been telling you about a living God who is your heavenly father that loves you is absolutely true and he wants to provide for you. Here's my quarter. And he left that place and he went home and we're told in the account of his life that he ate some thin porridge that night. And the next morning he woke up and we're told that he prayed this prayer. First thing in the morning, Lord, your word says, and it says this in Proverbs nineteen seventeen, that anyone who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Lord, don't let it be a long loan or I won't be eating lunch. Just after he prayed, there came a knock at the door, true story, and he opened up the door and there was delivered to him an envelope. And he couldn't read the name. It had been smudged by his landlady's wet hand. It was raining out. He opened up the envelope and as he opened it out, a large sum of money fell out that was 400 times more than what he had given. And he simply said, thank you, God. You are faithful. And his life was changed from that moment forward. You see, he trusted God to repay and to rebuild, to build. God gave him more than a hundredfold. What a tremendous investment. And he built faith, and it was that moment where he knew that God would provide for him to go to China and start missions all over that country and to leave a legacy for decades to come. And thousands have been saved because of his faithful labor. God taught him that through the equivalent of a quarter. What does God want to do in your life? What does God want to teach you? What's in your pocket? What are you holding on to a little too tightly? What is God trying to say? Understand, as you listen for the voice of God, that he is not a taker. He does not delight in sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. Don't think in response to this message that, well, I'm going to go out now, I'm going to give up some stuff. I'm going to give away something, and I'm going to give up surfing, and I'm going to get rid of this and that and the other, just because. There's no merit in that before God. God doesn't delight in that. He's your heavenly Father. He loves to give good gifts to you. But if there's something that you're holding on to tightly, he delights in removing it that he might have the wholeness of your heart and that he might build into you tremendous faith that you would believe that he is a God who rewards and who opens up the windows of heaven. And that brings us to our next point. Thirdly, giving to the Lord is an investment opportunity. I've chosen my words very carefully there. It is an opportunity. In other words, you don't have to give anything to the Lord. You don't have to sacrifice a thing for the Lord. In a sense, you do because we read Malachi chapter 3. And if you don't, you're robbing from God. But in another sense, you don't because it doesn't affect things salvifically or rather with regards to salvation. In other words, if you're a Christian and you made a decision right now, I am never going to give anything to the Lord. I'm not going to sacrifice any of my comfort, any of my stuff, or any of my time. It would not change the way God feels about you. Not a single bit. It is impossible for him to love you anymore. It is impossible for him to love you any less. He loves you perfectly with agape love. It wouldn't change a single thing about how God feels about you, but you would never change. God's heart toward you wouldn't change, but you would never change. You limit what God can do in your life. You see, it's about you. In this case, for once, Christianity is about you. When your heart is wrapped around your stuff. 
And so it is an opportunity. We don't have to take part in the things of the kingdom of God. We may if we desire. And it is an investment opportunity in that it pays tremendous dividends in this life and in the life to come. It is an investment that makes sense and it seems foolish to pass it up. There was a guy who was a businessman and his name is R.G. It's French, Le Tourneau, however you say it. I don't know, French stuff. And uh, early in the 1900s, he was a successful businessman and he was struggling with this idea of giving things to the Lord. And what he thought was that in order to give to the Lord, he really had to be in full-time ministry. He thought that it was only pastors and missionaries and evangelists that were really sacrificing for the Lord. And thankful to God, he had an encounter with his pastor one day, and his pastor said, you know, Brother Le Tourneau, God needs businessmen as well as preachers and missionaries. And he said, those were words that guided my life ever since. I repeat them in public at every opportunity because I have discovered that many men have the same mistaken idea I had of what it means to serve the Lord. My idea was if a man was going all out for God, he had to be a preacher or evangelist or missionary or what we call a full-time worker. I didn't realize that a layman could serve the Lord as well as a preacher. Amen. I left the parsonage in sort of a daze. If God needed businessmen, he could certainly find a lot better material than a dirt mover with a lot of debts piled up in the garage business. But I said, all right, if that is what God wants me to be, I'll try to be his businessman. He was extremely successful, developed many of the tractors and trucks that are used today, and God moved him to a place of giving 90% of his personal income and the income of his business to the work of the Lord. And the more he gave, the more Lord blessed. Start out with 10, the Lord gave too much. 20, the Lord has given too much. 30, the Lord has given too much. Ended up at the end of his life giving 90% to the Lord. Full-time ministry. Not a pastor, not a preacher, not a missionary. A businessman. You see, the business, that's the front lines of the kingdom of God. The school, the family, wherever God has you, that's the front lines. It's not here in the four walls of the church. You understand that this is sort of the retreat center. This is where we come and we hear from the general and he gives us our marching orders. But the soldiers have got to go out and the laymen are the ones that are on the front line. I will remind you that in the book of Hebrews we have in chapter 11 the hall of fame, rather the hall of faith. The famous men and women of faith and 90% of those were lay people. They were not in full-time ministry to God. They were normal men and women that believed God at His Word and gave sacrificially, and God did exceeding abundantly. And so living sacrificially is seeing the greater purpose, the bigger need, that there's something beyond you. It's seeking first the kingdom of God and having an eternal perspective. God wants to employ every one of us in his work, but every one of us is different. And so what God calls us to do and to give will be different. There is, in Luke chapter 21, the widow. Jesus was observing one day people giving at the temple. And all the rich would come and they would give. And at that day, the way that they collected the tithe and the offerings was they had these big bins. And the Jews would come and the wealthy ones would make sure that everybody knew they were coming. They would come and they'd blow the horn and say, here I come to give my gift to the Lord. (laughs) Ha ha, look at me. And they put their stuff in there. And we're told in Luke 21 that there came a widow, decrepit and poor, and she came up and she just gave the widow's mite. 
the smallest amount of money known in that day. That's all she had. She gave all that she had. It was nothing. It was almost totally worthless, but she gave it. And the Lord said, that woman has given more than anybody else because she gave sacrificially. She didn't give out of abundance. She gave in a way that hurt. Jesus Christ gives us sacrificially through the cross. And we have an opportunity to respond and to do so for his kingdom. Maybe you're not the widow and maybe you have more than a mite. Luke chapter 12, verse 28 says, To he who has been given much, much is required. You don't need to leave here and sell all that you have. You don't need to leave here and give up your surfboards or your dirt bikes or anything else you have. You just need to leave and say, God, is there anything between me and you? Is there anything that could further the cause of the gospel? in my sphere of influence and around the world. If there is, Lord, I'd love to give it to you. And I can't wait to see how you bless as I give. Lord, we thank you for the overwhelming truth of the Bible that you are a giver and not a taker. And yet, Lord, we want to give of our lives We want to be living sacrifices. We want to give to you all that we are and all that we have for your purposes, for your kingdom, for your glory, and for your joy. And so I ask now for our congregation that you would give us amazing faith. Faith to believe your word, that you will open up the windows of heaven. Lord, I pray for those that aren't involved in giving, that you would speak what you want to speak to their hearts when you want to speak it. Let them feel no condemnation, no guilt. You are their God, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But be sovereign over our hearts. Teach us, each one, what you would have us do, what our role is in the kingdom. Save us, Lord, from being lukewarm Christians that don't do a thing for your kingdom. Deliver us into radical Christianity. We look for all the blessings, and we rejoice even in the persecutions, and we exalt you as king in all things. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we bless you for it. Communion is up here and the prayer team will be on the sides of the sanctuary. Sunday mornings is a time where we want to meet your needs. If you have needs this morning that can be met in prayer regarding the message or anything else totally unrelated, come forward and get some prayer, get ministered to. I want you to be able to do business with God. If you don't need to pray, let's just press in worship the Lord, and let's lay our crowns, all that we have, at his feet as the King of kings.